This morning, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to be in verses 10 through 12. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Taylor. I'm privileged to be one of the pastors here at City Light, and I'm so excited uh, that we get to uh, talk about ROI this morning. Uh, ROI, uh, spiritual ROI, if you will, uh, return on investment as believers. Uh, and this is just a really simple term. I'll explain it a little bit more in a minute. Uh, but for those of you uh, in the room this morning uh, who are here for the first time, uh, this is the perfect opportunity for you uh, to be asking questions about our church. Uh, we're really glad that you decided to visit. Uh, for those of you who don't know, return on investment is a business acronym, and it simply means uh, to help investors determine if their investment was worth it, if their investment was worth it, if their return outweighs the time, the energy, and the resources uh, into a particular uh, financial endeavor or an investment. And in the same way, this morning in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, uh, in this section in 2 Corinthians, he is very specifically going to try to encourage the Corinthian church to give generously, to give generously, just like the kids in the video were saying, that, that we as a church want to uh, stir in our hearts what it means to steward all of our resources in a God-honoring way. Uh, and Paul is trying to show the believers in Corinth that the ROI, that it's worth it, that it's 100% worth it, that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the kingdom of God, and when it comes to stewarding all of our resources towards kingdom advancement, that it's worth it. Uh, in other words, like, I was talking with the interns, uh, and I said, uh, spiritual gains, spiritual gains. This is, this is all about spiritual gains, that we're going to get a spiritual return. Look at somebody this morning and say, spiritual gains. You got to say it like you mean it. Like, say it like you're in the gym, and uh, I don't know if you guys go to Planet Fitness, but if you go to Planet Fitness, I, was, I do not go to Planet Fitness, but I was told that uh, there's like a there's like a alarm that goes off if you make noise or something, and uh, it's like the it's like does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, someone I get I see a few head shakes. Uh, it's like it's like you're trying to do this spiritual workout and and you have to yell out loud because the gains are just they're they're coming in a, in like ways that you can't imagine. That that this morning as we dive into God's word. The Lord is going to reveal through his word in a supernatural way the benefits of investing into the kingdom of God. Now, for the believers in the room, I want you to ask this question of your own faith, that you would really consider where you're at in your faith journey, in your sanctification, how the return on investment is going for you. How are you doing? Are you suffering? Are you thriving? Is, do you feel like it's worth it? Uh, and then... And then there's those of you in the room that you would say you don't believe in Jesus, you don't consider yourself a Christian, and I hope you ask the same question. Is Jesus worth it? In chapter 8, where Paul uh, takes uh, the people of the Corinthian church, he takes them on this like history lesson, and he begins to explain how the believers in Macedonia arrived at this place where their hearts were overflowing with joy and generosity after facing trial and extreme poverty. Wait a second, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. They were, their hearts were overflowing with joy and generosity after facing extreme trial and poverty. That's what it says in chapter eight. And Paul doesn't beg the Corinthian church to be generous. He doesn't do that. What he does is um, 
he just explains how the church in Macedonia, they were actually begging for an opportunity to give to the kingdom of God, to participate in the blessing of other believers, other saints. In other words, they were looking for more ways to share the gospel and more ways to be used by God. And for us this morning at City Light Church, the hope is that we would mimic the reputation of the Macedonian church. That we as believers with this every way initiative, that God is going to provide us with more opportunities to bind up broken hearts in our community, in your neighborhood, to preach the good news to those who are enslaved to sin and to see God do what only he can do in hearts and lives all around Falls Church, across DC, and I believe that if we have enough faith, the whole world. So for those of you who are here this morning and you're just checking out City Light for the first time, I think I see a few new faces in the room this morning. Uh, This is a perfect time for you to be visiting. Uh, So on your seats, you guys will see this commitment card. Uh, We are in the Everyway Initiative. You can go ahead and pick this up, look at it, flip it open. Uh, I want to explain this real quick. This is just a way for us to both pastorally and practically walk you through the steps for this Every Way initiative. This is a commitment card, and it helps you think through giving and what giving is going to look like. A lot of people get um, real nervous when we start talking about money in the church, and it's almost like we disconnect the reality that, that our giving to the Lord, it's spiritual. It's just as spiritual as praying or worshiping or reading the Bible. It's a spiritual thing that the Bible commands that we would steward all of our resources in such a way that God God would be glorified and that the gospel would go forward. The Every Way Initiative, it's a two-year initiative in which we as a church, we're going to be committed for the next two years to increase in our generosity in the areas of time, talent, and treasure. Now, there's a devotional, and if you haven't received a devotional yet, you can uh, raise your hand and somebody will bring you a devotional. Uh, you can put your hand high in the air if you haven't gotten a devotional, somebody will bring it to you. I don't see any hands up, so I'm assuming every one of you has a devotional and you've been using it. Uh, but what I want you to do is I want you to take that devotional and I wanna encourage you uh, real simply to grab a copy, to write your name in it. We have two weeks left. I want you to write your name in it. And then I want you to go home and one evening this week, um, instead of watching Netflix or instead of watching ESPN or This Is Us or whatever, you know, whatever your thing is that you do in the evening, instead of doing that, I want you to flip open this devotional. And uh, if you're married, you can do this with your spouse. If you have kids, you can invite them to do this also. And I want you to read the questions in that devotional. And then I want you to think about what you read. Then I want you to write it down. And then I want you to pray about it. And, and here's why I'm spelling this out for you is because Just like Paul hundreds of years ago was attempting to motivate the Corinthian church to see the benefits of giving, the benefits of generosity, as one of your pastors, I so desperately want us to see collectively as a church the benefits and the joy, the spiritual ROI of what it looks like for us to steward all of our lives, all of our lives, not, not just a little bit, not just a section that we're comfortable, but our entire lives to steward all of our resources in like a Luke 10, 27 kind of way. All our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all your strength that you would steward everything. Or in like, uh, think like Romans 12. Romans 12 where Paul says, I appeal to you, brethren, that by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that you and I would know in our hearts and that we would be an example and demonstrate to a lost world that Jesus, 
He's the Lord of our time. That, that I prioritize in my schedule, my relationship with the Lord. That, that with, with the talents, you know, that, that thing that you're just like freakishly good at and you, and you don't really know why and it was given to you by the Lord, that, that with your talents, Jesus is Lord. And then lastly, with, with your money, that, that he's Lord over your pocketbook, that he's Lord over your bank account, that he's Lord over your wallet, your treasures. As we approach verse 10 this morning in 2 Corinthians, Paul is finishing up this section in the letter where he's been trying to teach them about being generous. And in these few verses, he concludes to this section. And Paul, he saves the best for last. So this is what the Bible says. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply. Say, some, say to somebody, supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And Lord, as we look at this text this morning, we talk about a spiritual return, that spiritual gains on an investment into your kingdom. Lord, would your spirit go before us? Lord, would you stir in our hearts all across this room that our hearts would be encouraged, that our hearts would be inspired, uh, and then for those that need it, Lord, that our hearts would be convicted, that you supernaturally would reprioritize the desires of our hearts to match the truth of this word this morning. So in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so here's our guiding sentence for today's message. Our guiding sentence for today's message. You can write this down. God will supply and multiply my righteousness and thankfulness when I sow. God will supply and multiply my righteousness and my thankfulness when I sow. And our first point is increased righteousness. Increased righteousness. You can write that down. And Paul tells us, that our first spiritual gain on this investment into the kingdom of God is increased righteousness. It's increased righteousness. Now, verse 10 starts by pointing to the supplier. He who supplies the, to the sower and the bread for the food will supply and multiply your seeds for sowing. It starts with God. God is the source of all of our provision. He's the source of the seed, and he's the source of the bread. This is the fact that God supplies. Now, I could preach an entire message on the provision of God, but the point that he is making is about the byproduct of that provision. It's about the byproduct of the fact that God gives us seeds to sow. Now, here's the harsh reality is that uh, you and I, we exist in this Christian culture, this Christian circle, uh, and this, this is kind of a sad truth that, that there are many pastors and there are many church leaders who have twisted this verse into meaning that the more you give, the more you gain. That the more you give, the more you gain. That too many preachers have led their congregations astray with teaching that one of the primary motivations for giving generously is that God will multiply whatever we give and receive back tenfold. And that's just not true. That's not true. That's not what this text is saying. Jesus is not a ticket to perfect health and financial wealth. That's not how this works. Paul is quoting Isaiah 55, 10 here. Look at it, it's on the screen. We get this picture of the farmer's role in being a recipient of God. So verse 10, it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Notice that the verse says, verse 12, it says that God's going to supply and multiply your seeds. He's going to supply and multiply your seeds. The text does not say that he's going to multiply your money, your time. It doesn't say that he's going to multiply your riches. It simply is an illustration of the natural process that when a farmer plants seeds, let's say like just for the sake of the illustration, I like strawberries, so like seven strawberry seeds, okay? You plant seven strawberry seeds, and as those plants grow, and the heavens or God provides water or snow, uh, and, the, and those seeds grow up, the ROI, the gains on that is that the, the sowing and multiplication of seeds, that seven strawberry plants grow and you get all these seeds. And in our context, more opportunities to sow or to plant. This is not more strawberries. Paul is not saying that God will multiply your money. That's what I was taught though. I don't know about you, I was certainly taught that. As it relates to resources, I was certainly taught that you can't outgive God. That the more you give to the Lord, the more he will give to you. It sounds Christian, doesn't it? It sounds like catchy, like, like if I was trying to line my pockets or uh, just make a bunch of money or lead you astray and, and, and tell you that, you know, accepting Jesus means that you'll never hit a red light ever again, that it's going to be green lights from here on out. It's this prosperity theology that has been so intertwined with the American way of thinking, and it's just false. It's just not true. And the last thing I would want for us to leave uh, this place and not recognize uh, that we need to, in some ways, detox our brains from, from this kind of thinking. And maybe for some of you in the room, um, a preacher didn't explicitly say that to you, but our culture certainly has screamed it. Our culture has screamed it. See, I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest, when I think about my future, even as one of your pastors, it's hard for me to think about the future and not to imagine in, in some way that the future doesn't just mean more that it doesn't just mean more. We live in a country uh, that has made um, a, a dream attached to it. And that American dream, it is all about personal progression and personal gain. And it's hard for me to think of my future and not just generally think more, whether it's more money or more time or more love or more influence or more children or more possessions. If you grew up in America like me, we come to verse 10, and, and, and we really have to, um, we have to take an account of, of where our thoughts are at as it relates to this way of thinking. The book of Hosea, it says it this way. It says it this way, Hosea chapter 10, verse nine. I said, plant the good seeds of righteousness and you will harvest a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts for now is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and shower righteousness upon you. See, the last thing that you and I need is more possessions or more stuff. That's a lie. That's not what we need. It's not going to satisfy. And if you're a believer in the room this morning, if you, if you believe and in, in, in trust in Christ, then, then make it rain for you means something completely different. It means completely different. It is not about money. And even the secular world testifies to this. I was talking to somebody else about this this week, uh, that you know the secular world, more money, more problems right? They, they recognize that it's why in our world we know so many people that are rich and miserable, and then yet we know a lot of people who have, have very little, but they're just like overflowing with joy. They have very little, and they're overflowing with joy. Uh, that your heavenly Father would, 
would shower upon you and I righteousness. Righteousness, that's our greatest need. I remember when I was 12 years old, I had been saving my money for a while, and at that time, uh, I was 12, and I'd save, saving all my money, I was, trying to, I was trying to be a good steward, I think, and um, I had saved a grand total of $400, okay? This was a big deal. I don't see you guys being excited for me. I saved $400 as a 12-year-old, okay? This was huge. And now I, I took all of that money and I went to the mall. And it wasn't really a mall. It was in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It's kind of like a strip. There were a couple stores there. And, I, and my mom let me purchase this Sony surround sound system, okay? Um, I think there's a picture on the screen. There might not be, but it was a Sony surround sound system. Y'all, this surround sound system, this was like it. This, this, was, this was what it was about, okay? Like... This surround sound system, it came with five speakers and the subwoofer, uh, if you can see it, it was bigger than my head. It was, it was like, this thing was, so, I was so excited about this. Like I was all in, like friends of mine would come over after school just so we could go upstairs in my room and we would watch movies that had like the Dolby Digital 5.1 surround sound. Like we didn't even care about the movie. We just wanted to hear like stuff behind us in the room. And, and we wanted to be fully immersed in this Sony, like make, I can remember the advertisements, like the Sony make-believe experience. Like, and, and I was so bought into this. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that like in my marriage, I'm the spender, okay? Uh, I am the spender. I think that God and his providence and his extreme intelligence, uh, there's spenders and there are savers and they always get married. That's what happens. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm the, like, there's unboxing videos. They're like, uh, that's a thing. Like you can go on YouTube and you can just watch people unbox other stuff that you're not, un and I can, under I can relate. Like I can get excited about an unboxing video on YouTube. Uh, I'm definitely the spender, and and I and I think that um, that this this man y'all should have been there listening to this surround sound system. It was so great. Um, it, it was I and I a few days after I purchased the surround sound system, I went to visit my dad in Massachusetts. So I grew up in Virginia, and I would go back and visit him. And um, and now that I had the point of reference, I was sitting in his living room, and all of a sudden I noticed his surround sound system. And because it, like, it's like you buy a new car, you see that same car everywhere on the road. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, and, uh, and I just remember thinking like, like, who would buy that? Like, I was looking at his surround sound system and it looked so old and outdated. Like the speakers were bigger, like they came like halfway up to my waist. They were, they were huge and they, it just looked like he got ripped off. Like it really looked like he got ripped off. And, and it looked like so outdated, so old, like why would you waste your money on that? And then my 12-year-old brain, all of a sudden it just like dawned on me that in about 20 years, I would feel the same exact way about my surround sound system. That I would feel the same exact way that like maybe I got ripped off. Maybe that was not a good investment for me. Now, um, I did the math. It's been 19 years since I purchased that surround sound system. And uh, just to prove a point, I looked it up on eBay. It's worth $30 today, okay? So we're $30 today. And uh, listen, the, the point of our life is not that you and I would consume and enjoy everything that this world has to offer. Everything in this world is going to fade away. It's going to lose its value. You, you know, the only thing that you can take with you when you die, you know the only thing that you can take? People. That's it. The only thing that matters at the end of your life is people. Anyone ever play uh, Catan or Monopoly? 
Like, some of you guys are like, no, it takes way too long, okay? And then for all the Catan nerds in the room, you're like, yes, I play it all the time, and I'm so good at collecting sheep and trading for rocks, and I build my resources. You know what happens at the end of the game after you get 10 victory points? Everything goes back in the box. That's what happens. Everything goes back in the box, and then everyone's mad at you, and you've broken relationships with your family members, and they're all upset uh, because you are greedy, and you built your little Catan world or your Monopoly world, even though, like, don't ever be the thimble in uh, Monopoly, by the way. That's not a good idea. If you're the thimble, you're going to lose. It's just guaranteed. Um, but but we, we live in a world where it's, it's kind of like Catan and Monopoly, that at the end of this life, everything just goes back into the box. Everything goes back into the box, and the only thing that you can take with you is people. Listen, I don't know what things in this world compete for the affections and the attention of your heart. I don't know. And looking back, it seems silly today, but the truth is, is that my 12-year-old heart cared more about that sound system than it did about people. Certainly more than it did about God. And it's only because someone, some person that knew the gospel chose to sow the seed of the gospel in my life in such a way that the Lord multiplied their righteousness and that by God's grace, the priorities of my heart would supernaturally be rearranged in such a way that I would increase in righteousness and I would begin to sow seeds of the gospel. That God would supply and multiply my righteousness. And then he'll supply my thankfulness as well when I sow. So this leads us to our second point. Write this down. Increase thankfulness. Increase thankfulness. Our second spiritual gain is increase thankfulness. I want to be grateful, and I don't want to have to fake it. I want to be thankful, and I want it to come out naturally. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And then verse 12 for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so those, the people that are in need of help, they're in need of the gospel, it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So in verse 12, we see thanksgiving, and in verse, 12, uh, in verse 11, we see thanksgiving. Here at City Light Church, we try to enter into the Lord's presence in prayer through thanksgiving all the time. You'll hear Nate say it until he's blue in the face, that before we pray, we want to be thankful. We want the Lord to know that before we ask anything of him, we're expressing gratitude towards him. Here at City Light Church, today, every day, we celebrate the glorious truth that you and I have been rescued. That we've been rescued. That's why we use the word saved. It's because the message of the Bible describes the condition of the non-believer as someone who is not in right standing with God. In other words, in their own effort and in their own power and in their own energy, they are unable to help themselves. On Tuesday nights uh, with our young adults, uh, we've been studying Ephesians. And uh, in the letter to Ephesians, Paul, uh, he says it this way. He says, um, he says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. It should be on the screen. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, so spiritually dead, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was my history. That was my history. We, we needed someone to sow a seed. They needed the Corinthian church, someone to tell them about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves you so much that while you were at your worst, Christ died for you. And then it goes on to say this in verse four and five. I love verse four and five. This produces gratitude. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you're listening right now and you recognize that you, your lived experience, we hear that a lot, especially if you watch the news, you hear this word like lived experience. Well, that's not my lived experience. If your lived experience is that you have been trying to live your life to the best that you know how, but somehow you keep getting in your own way. It's like you just can't get out of your way. That it's not that you don't believe in God, but you just feel so far from him. You feel so distanced from him. That, that is that... That, that you feel like no matter what you try to do, it's like you're, living, you're, you're swimming upstream against a current and, and, and every time you like pause to take a breath, the current just like brings you backward. If that's you, the Bible teaches that you are in need of rescue, that you're in need of rescue. The Bible makes it really clear. It says that we have all sinned against God, all. The word all, it's a very inclusive word. It means everyone, it means everyone. Some of you listening right now, even when I say the Bible says, there's like something inside of you that like bucks up. Like the Bible doesn't have authority. Like so what that the Bible says? There's something in you that just like, mm, that just, it, it just, it rubs you the wrong way. And, and, and to you, I'd say, if you don't know Jesus, there is in, uh, there's this like spiritual reality in which the principalities of good and evil and the powers of good and evil in this world, they're trying to win a war. And, and the battleground is your heart. To be saved is to make Jesus Lord of your life. To turn from living a life according to your own way of thinking and to confess that you're in need of rescue. To trust Jesus because he lived the perfect life and that he died and was resurrected from the dead three days later and that somehow what he did counted for you. This is what Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthian church. Look what he says in, in chapter eight. So this is before we get to chapter nine, but this is, how, this is how Paul describes the gospel. In verse seven, he says, but you excel in everything. That's why we, this is an every way initiative. That in every way we would make the gospel known, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also, or act of grace, generosity. He's trying to get them to give to believers who they've never met. And then verse eight, I say this not as a command, so not forcefully, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Here at City Light, we, 
recognize that we've been rescued, amen? That rescue produces thanksgiving. And that what Paul's trying to say in verse 12 is this reality that those who have been rescued, they join the rescue team. If you've been rescued, you are now on the rescue team. I'm in the military, and so like, I was thinking about this like, as a Navy SEAL. How weird would it be to be rescued by Navy SEALs, and then all of a sudden, the next day, you're a Navy SEAL? Like, that doesn't make sense. You didn't go through the training. You never, like, you know, you never did buds. You never did that. You're not a Navy SEAL. But in the kingdom of God, if you're rescued by the church, you become a member of the church. You become sons and daughters in the household of God. You join the rescue team. Our mission at this church is not just to enjoy the light of Christ in our lives until we die. It's not what our mission statement is. It's not what we do. No, it's to shine the light of Christ in dark and hard places because we've joined the rescue team. We have been given gospel seeds and we have the privilege and the honor and it's our mission to go and sow those seeds. And we sow in such a way that other people will be rescued and then they will become thankful. The return on investment is gratitude. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, it says overflowing gratitude. That's such a good word picture. Like overflowing gratitude. So my mom was a first grade teacher and all I could think about when I read this was that like, you know, a kid, like when you give a kid something and, and the mom says like, now what do we say, all right? Like you're, and the kid, like you just see the kid's like full sinful nature on full display because they don't want to say thank you and it, it just takes all of their energy to like muster out a, a thank you. This isn't like this at all, that, all, that at all. Like our thankfulness to what the Lord has done for saving us from ourselves, from, from separating us from, from eternal damnation and rescuing us from raising us from spiritual deadness to being raised alive in Christ. Like the thank you is overflowing. It's not forced. It's natural. I do hope to see this for our church, that your neighbors, your coworkers, the people in this community would be overflowing for thankfulness because of your faithfulness in sowing. And um, so I think the best way to illustrate this is, uh, is like in a marriage relationship. Um, if you notice in chapter eight, Paul, Paul says not, not controlling, right? Like he's trying to increase their generosity and he's not doing it in a way of like, this is what you must do. And when, when it comes to giving in the church, there's a reason that the Lord doesn't demand a price or a number or like this is how much you have to give that rather we get like be open-handed that, that God wants a cheerful giver. And I think the reason for that is if you look at a marriage relationship or love relationship, it's not contractual. It's not contractual. It's, it's about um, how much you can serve the other person. And for any of the marriages in the room, um, you know that the number one thing that kills your intimacy and your relationship is if you guys start saying to each other, well, well, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. And all of a sudden it becomes an exchange, a contract of like, like your, your appreciation of each other is completely contingent on what the other person does and there's expectations associated with it. Like no, contracts happen with like Verizon and with like our, our cable company or with like our, our auto insurance company. Like imagine if you got a call from, from Verizon 
and they were like, hey, like, we just really appreciate your service, and uh, we just wanted to thank you, and we wanted to let you know how much we appreciate you as a customer, um, and you don't have to pay us for the next 12 months. Like, we're gonna be faithful to providing you with internet service for a while, regardless of whether or not you pay. And that's, that's contractual. No, Verizon calls when we haven't paid, when, when there's something wrong, that's when they call. And, and in a marriage relationship, when we start to make it contractual, the number one thing is that, that dies is love and intimacy. It just completely dies. Because intimacy and love cannot exist in a contractual relationship. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. That God wants us to be open-handed about everything that he's given us. That as soon as we start getting into this like, well, well, what is the bare minimum that I can give to the Lord in order for him not to be angry with me? No, that's a contract. That's a contract. Jesus paid it all. He suffered on the cross in such a way that he stewarded all of his life, all of it. He became poor so that you and I would become rich. In Colossians, um, Colossians it says it this way. Paul is talking about his suffering. Uh, in verse 24, it says, Paul says this about his suffering. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body. That is his church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. Hold on, wait. He says, Christ's afflictions, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions... When we look at the cross, what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? As it relates to him paying the penalty for sin and death and saving us, nothing. Nothing was lacking. But, but what Paul's referring to is this ministry of the stewardship of the gospel that in response to what Christ has done, I, Paul, am going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes to steward and give all of my life and I'm going to rejoice over my suffering because for your sake, you're going to be blessed. You're going to understand just how much Jesus loves you. Uh, and and um, in 2 Corinthians towards the end um, of the book, Paul starts getting into this defense of who he is as an apostle because there's these individuals that start coming at him for his authority to preach the gospel and his apostleship and whether or not it's legitimate. And in verse 23, he starts to defend himself. It's on the screen. This is what Paul says in defense of himself as it relates to his suffering. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Paul's like, I'm getting ready to go off right now, and, and I'm, I'm talking like a bad man. Like, don't come at me, bro. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five times I received the hands of the Jews for 40 lashes, less one. They would only whip you 39 times because they believed that 40 would kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. And for some of you in the room, this is different. This is not that kind of stoned. This is like a different kind of stoned. Um, it's just not the same. It's a, it's a different stoned. Um, it's to like throw rocks. Uh, and yeah, and uh, he was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me. And what's his pressure on? Where's his pre- what, what's the source of his pressure? His anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And in verse 31, he says, the God of our Father, Lord, and Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever and knows, he knows that I am not lying. And Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. He was writing from prison, and he's basically saying that, you know, I'm in prison right now, but it's okay for your sake. It's okay for your sake. You know, I was thinking about suffering, and it's, it's weird that, you know, we would, we would ask the question, what does it cost us to follow Jesus? What's the return on investment? What is this going to really, really cost us? And, and, and um, I started to think of like the gym, like the goal of going to the gym isn't uh, to go to the gym, no, it's to get stronger. And, and so you endure suffering or, or like college, you endure like those, those long nights of, of staying up all day and like all night and, and studying because there's this, like, there's this goal And so in light of the goal, you're willing to suffer for the end results. But the best thing I could think of, the best thing I could think of, probably because it exists right now in my own life, is uh, is childbirth, is childbirth. My wife's pregnant right now. And and, um, every mama in here knows that they would look at their child. And and some of you in the room that are like, you know, maybe you're vegan or you're like, childbirth is beautiful. It's not, it's not beautiful. It's just not, it's terrible. It, it was literally the curse for sin. That's what it was. And, um, and, and, and every mom here knows, though, that they would look at their baby and every mother would say, like, worth it. It's completely worth it. That's what Paul is getting at here. I rejoice in my sufferings because it's worth it. Jesus paid it all. And, and even when we look at the cross, it should be a reminder that because Christ suffered, we too should join him in in his suffering for the sake of others. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And that we at City Light Church, when it comes to stewarding our resources, that God would multiply our righteousness and our thankfulness because we've sowed seeds of the gospel. That we would take this gospel message and we wouldn't keep it for ourselves, but that we would sow it in such a way that righteousness and thankfulness would be reproduced in a spiritual way in hearts and lives all around us. And that we would rejoice with Paul in the suffering for kingdom work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that although you were rich you stepped out of heaven and became poor so that we might become rich in you. Lord, I 
pray that you would supply and multiply our righteousness and our thankfulness in such a supernatural way, Lord, that our hearts would be so grateful for the price that you paid on the cross that we, in response to that, would go and sow seeds of the gospel with our time, talent, and treasures, Lord, that we would not hold anything back, that because you gave it all, that we would graciously and gladly give it all back to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why don't you guys stand with us in worship?